Hello and welcome to episode four of International Conversations, this time with my friend Steve, living here also in, uh, in Belgium. A fascinating insight into his life from his early days to now, encompassing, uh, uh, well, the east end of London, right through to living in, uh, in the heart of Europe, in, in, um, in Brussels, and uh, his work and his career actually with the European Commission and various aspects related to politics, climate change, poetry and writing crime novels. Hope you enjoy it. Hello Steve, how are you? I'm very well, thank you Nigel. And yourself? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. Good. Yeah, good. I'm okay. Yes. Um, welcome. Appreciate you uh, joining the podcast for this episode. Thank you very much. It's a, it's a great pleasure. I'm looking forward to it. Good, good. Excellent. Well, so as we discussed before, uh, I normally kind of run through a formula, kind of talk about your family and occupation, uh, recreation, kind of dreams and aspirations and any kind of important issue that if we've not already covered, you'd like to like to discuss as well. So maybe we can uh, we can jump into it. So let's start with Kind of family and and you know your your background as it were, Steve. And it'd be kind of interesting to to hear a bit more about about that to begin with. I think. Right. Well, I mean, I was born in um, West Ham in East London, um, not too far from the old football ground actually at Upton Park. Uh, in 1953, so I'm, I'm 68 years old now, and. Um, very soon after I was born, in fact, my parents um, moved out to Raynham in Essex, which is just the other side of the Ford Stagman plant. Yeah. And uh, we lived there for, for many years, in fact, um, until really I left home in the, at the end of the 70s. And subsequently, my, my parents uh, moved on after that. But perhaps I can tell you a little bit about my parents, if that's a good idea. Yeah, sure. I'm just um, thinking about. Um, I was just thinking about. Um, uh, you were saying, and uh, you, you were in Raynham in Essex, right? And um, I lived near Raynham in Kent. It's very confusing yes. <laughs> from the postal point of view. To which I've never been. I must be honest with you, although I probably should have been at some stage. But, and, um, and I've never been to Raynham in Essex either. <laughs> I'm tempted to say you haven't missed much, but I suppose that's unfair to a number of people in Raynham, in both Raynham. So um, there we go. I, I could say the same. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think kind of small towns and, you know, kind of blink and you would have missed it as you drive through kind of stuff, experience, I suppose. Yes. But... In fact, um, interestingly, when you take the Eurostar um, from St Pancras down towards the coast, I mean, just before you go under the Thames, you right. do actually pass by Raynham Station, Raynham in Essex, where oh, I used to, for some years, I used to, um, you know, wait to get the train to London when I worked in London. You do actually pass by the back of Raynham Station, where the Eurostar actually passes, the high-speed line passes by there. And you can see, you know, as you go along, as you come into it, you can see Raynham Steel, for instance, which is quite a, a big company, which is advertised mm -hmm. and... Um, you can see the church as you go out of it. So I'm when I go to the Eurostar, I can, I'm fairly familiar with what I'm looking at, you know, on that side. Um, so, but it's, it's a, you know, I think you're probably right. It's a kind of not. It was a kind of nondescript um, town, rather sprawling. Um, we lived at the end, which was, I suppose was the newer end of it, where a lot of houses were built after the war, um, and. There was a bit more space, so a lot of people had bungalows. Um, so, in fact, I mean, it was quite a nice place to. It was quite a nice childhood, really. We had we weren't mm -hmm. far from the countryside, mm -hmm. and uh, we had a bit of space to run around. I mean, we we lived on unmade roads for many many years. Right. Um, I think the roads were only made up when I was about twelve or something like that in the sixties. But wow. it, was a, it was a nice enough existence. Uh, you always had to walk a long way to get anywhere because <laughs> there was, uh, <laughs> to get to the station, it was about a mile and a quarter's walk from where we lived. Um, and there was the old bus, but you, you never really sort of, you know, you never really relied on the bus too much. Right? 
Most people were a lot fitter in those days as well, I suspect, with uh, unadopted roads and uh, long walks everywhere. And when you were running... Right, I mean, <laughs> was that in wheat, it wasn't in wheat fields. You weren't bumping into Theresa May or anything like no, that. No, it wasn't quite like that. No, it was... <laughs> <laughs> there were a couple of um, rubbish tips, you know, not so far away. You know. but not, 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 not as much in the way of wheat fields. We okay. had... Um, I mean, we used to go... To, we used to walk to school. I mean, when I think about it now, I think when I was... I went to school at five, I think, you know, primary school. And I think, I mean, thinking about it, we used to walk to the primary school every day and back, which was about an hour, you know, with my mum there and back, you know. But it didn't seem, it didn't seem to be unusual really then. I suppose it was just yeah. normal, you know. Very few people had cars in the neighbourhood. Right. Um, right. So, but my dad, in fact, I mean, when I go back to my dad, he was... My dad was born in um, 1917 in um, in Bow in East London, George oh. Page, and he, I mean, he had one of these careers I think, which is probably defined by the war or a life really, which is defined by the war because he left school at 14, which almost okay. everybody did then, you know, and he went to work in a furniture factory in Bow as um, as a labourer. Um, for about nine years, and then, and probably would have stayed there for a good part of his life, I imagine. Um, but then, of course, the war came along, and he he was called up, went into the army, um, yeah. you know, fought in North Africa, and came back through Italy. And of course, after the war, everything changed because um, he was demobbed, and he looked for another job. And the first one he saw was a security guard at the Tower of London. Wow. <laughs> Which, and he ended up sort of effectively. He told me he always told me he ended up guarding the crown jewels. I'm not sure if that's literally true, but um, he uh, and a few years after that, he went into the customs excise at the Royal Albert Dock in London, which right. where there were at that time still docks in London. You know, thriving, thriving very busy mm. areas of dock areas, and uh, he stayed there till he retired in um, 1979. And wow. he actually went out on something called job release, the job release scheme. So he retired, I think, at 62. Okay. Um, and he was a bit younger. But there was this, I think it was under the Jim Callaghan Labour government. It was the job release scheme. The idea was to sort of let older people leave early so younger people, younger unemployed people could, could get jobs. I, I think Not I remember sure you yeah, I, I, I was quite young, but I do remember the Callaghan administration, you know, those halcyon days of that Labour administration. Yes, yes. Yeah, the crisis, what crisis, and things like this. Yeah, yes. yeah, indeed, the power cuts and three days, three days a week. And, yes. and yeah, my mum yes, asked on the bus to wave to uh, to firemen who were on strike, you know, in the in the cold winter and all sitting around a brazier trying to keep warm. But yeah, it was uh, it was. Uh, you look back with fond memories now. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I was going to say I don't. I don't think we have too many uh, regrets for not um, having gone past those days. But still, you know. <laughs> and in fact, I mean, in the end, with my dad, of course, he as I said then he moved to Raynham, and then he ended up. Um, Moving out, in fact, further into Essex, so quite close to Brentwood in Essex, where oh, yeah. he retired. And here my mum lived in a little bungalow out in a place called West Horndon. But the interesting thing about that was that my dad, when he was a, when he was a boy before the war, when he was a teenager, really, before the war, um, he was a very keen cyclist. And he and his friends used to, every weekend, they would cycle out to the east end of London, which was a pretty smoky horrible mm. environment in those days you know um right out to this part of essex in west horndon landon you know around the brentwood area um and it's strange that he ended up living there you know in his retirement because he remembered he remembered a lot of the places you know that he'd actually stopped off at um on his bike and everything like that so in a way it was a nice rather circular mm -hmm. life in that straight in that in that way you know and he passed away in 2004. I mean, it's a long time ago now. 2004. Yeah. Um, and my mum uh, was five years younger than my dad. She was born in 1922. Right. And um, after she left school, I mean, she went to work as a secretary in the, in the city of London. And then she also joined up during the war. She joined uh, the ATS, 
which was right. the sort of the women's, um, you know, the women's sort of uh, army service um, in the in the, in World War Two. Uh, one thing I have, one thing I still have actually, is her um, her vaccination book from when she was in the ATS and all these remarkably exotic sounding vaccination she had. I mean, uh, you couldn't really be an anti-vaxxer in those days, I don't know. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, it's not. Cholera, cholera jabs and all sorts of things. Um, did she... I don't know where uh, this cholera travel? was coming from. I'm sorry? Sorry, did she travel? Did she, um, did no, she also go... No. She stayed no, in the UK? No, she stayed in the UK. She was actually based at uh, Saxmundham in Suffolk. Um, oh, I remember that, yeah. Yeah, Saxmundham yeah. in Suffolk. Uh, from and which um, she stayed. I think she was there for about three years. Right. Uh, it was a good. I think for people who, not, not so much for my mum, but it's more for my dad. But it, I think the war, in many respects, you know, did just sort of change their outlook and their and their prospects. Really. Definitely. You know, um, my, certainly, my dad, I think, would have never had the the life that he had. You know, but, but for the war and but for this big, this enormous change, uh, which he was able to effect through, you know, getting a different job after the war. And it's my mum, I mean, my mum was, uh, my, they were married in 1947, my mum and dad. And my mum my actually didn't work very much when I was a boy. Uh, my brother came along uh, a few years later. But later on, she did go back to work and she worked for the coal board and, um, the Export Credit Guarantees Department. And being younger than my dad, of course, she actually worked on longer than my, my dad did. She only retired, I think, around about 1983. Oh, wow. So they were, I mean, my dad for some for some years was uh, was the one at home, really, you know, sort oh. of, um, <clears throat> trying to cook dinners and things like this and frying sausages. So. I noticed they're trying to cook. I think it was pretty good on the frying side from memory. Okay. Um, okay. I, I don't know about the other things. But... <laughs> um, it's also interesting what you said about, and I've not really thought about this in the past, but 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 a whole generation really. I mean, you know, the kind of downstream secondary impacts of the war was was you know instrumental on on changing. You know, ch changing their path, I suppose, going forward. You know, their jobs, where they live, relationships, all sorts of things. I mean, it, I mean, one can never underestimate the impact of a world war. Obviously, you know, clearly during the war, yes. but certainly, yeah, of course. Subsequently, it was um, it's quite dramatic, really, isn't it? It is. I think it's quite it's quite surprising when you look at it, um, because. I mean, certainly with my dad, as I say, and, and with many people, but I think with many people he knew as well, you know, people who were just doing what you might call mundane jobs. I mean, we've learned, we've learned recently, of course, that many of these mundane jobs are absolutely essential and we couldn't live without them. But, True. You know, doing what was called mundane sort of labouring job and in a factory. Um, and they suddenly came out with something completely different after the war. Um, you know, and I think that's perhaps something that's a bit underestimated, really. I mean, I know, you know, there was still a lot of, it depends on which level you were, I think, because I think, from my understanding, I mean, there was still quite a lot of snobbery after the war, um, yeah. particularly amongst men, you know, because it, a lot of what you were depended to some extent on what rank you'd been in the army or in the air force or wherever you were, you know. And I remember so, it's, um, it's the film... A room at the top, isn't it? The guy Joe Lampton yeah. in Room at the Top. I mean, he's only a he was a sergeant during the war, and I think he'd actually spent a lot of it in a he's supposed to have spent a lot of it in a prison prisoner of war camp, and he was rather looked down upon by people who were majors. You know, if, if he came across a major or something, I mean, people would call him sergeant, you know, rather derogatory way. But for someone like my dad, of course, who was just a he was just, my dad was just at the sort of corporal or private level or whatever it was. Um, it was okay because I think you came out and there were lots of other things suddenly available. Right, right. Or a London thing, which is something you would never have thought of, I suppose, before before the war. Suddenly, no. you know, that becomes, well, okay, I'll, I'll go for that. You know, it goes along and immediately gets taken on. Um, so... 
And the banker thing is also very interesting as well, you're saying, because uh, it, when you, I mean, you were too, it clearly shows our literary backgrounds uh, are very different because you were thinking about, remember at the top, I was thinking about Dan's Army. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, captain no, no, exactly. Maywood. It's the same it's the thing. Bank yes, exactly. Yeah, had to be the captain and so forth as well. You know, I mean, there was no discussion almost, you know, that just had to be the way because it was based on your standing in life as well. But, but, um, but yeah, the, you're right. I suppose, and post, you know, post World War Two, and for the years after, and, and you know, when people had reunions and stuff and so forth. But um, it, I suppose it's part of our class system. I suppose in the UK as well, it was another kind of qualifier. I suppose, isn't it? But but even yes, if you did yeah. well in the war, in terms of the well, no, not an inappropriate phrase, but in terms of yes. you know, excelling <laughs> in terms of going up the ranks and so forth, I'm sure there are plenty of people after the war who would still put you in your place in terms of well you know, based on where your roots were rather than, you know, yeah, and then you became a captain or something like that, yeah. Yes, yeah, I mean, I, it must have been uh, slight. And Room at the Top is particularly interesting because it was written, I think, Room at the Top was written in the late 50s, but it's actually set in 1947 or 1948, I think, so right. very close to the end of the war. And um, yeah. it's it's quite an interesting take on it, really, you know, this... Um, the way that everybody sort of regards, you know, that their rank in the their rank in the forces still determines the relationships they have at work and on a personal Absolutely. level sometimes. Yeah. So anyway, I mean, that's yeah. really, I mean, the war has certainly played a big part in their lives. Mm. I mean, my mum, my mum, obviously, you know, I mean, she had a, she lived. They also lived in Raynham and then moved out to West Hornden. And uh, after my dad died, she lived in West Hornden in the same bungalow for a number of years um, right. until she went into a care home in um, Basildon, okay. uh, which is not far away. And no. uh, she actually had the last four years of her life were very, very, I think, very pleasant in the care home. She, no, she actually nice. enjoyed herself quite a lot. Obviously, she was failing physically and beginning, um, to lose her, beginning to lose her memory. But I think just having people around uh, and having a social life was very good, very important to her. She could meet, you know, talk to people, and uh, and a lot, of, a lot of the people in the care home were people who came from, you know, originally from the East End of London and this kind of thing. So she had something in common with them. Nice. So it, it wasn't a negative. It wasn't, a, you know, being in the care home for her. It wasn't a, a wholly negative experience. I think. I think she was better off there than just staying at home by herself and. Having home care all nice. the time, which um, it's a positive side in, in some respects. They get a lot of negative press, but you actually, your mother's experience sounded so much more positive. Yes, I think so. I mean, it's not perfect, of course, but you know, it's, no. it, I think it was on, on balance. It was a lot better for her than just being, you know, sitting at, as she had been for a couple of years, you know, sitting at home fairly immobile and, having, and relying on home carers and um, you know, coming in three or four times a day. Uh, it wasn't a very easy situation. So, yeah, I mean, I was very grateful to the care home. I think they did a very good job with her. And there's one other question I wanted to ask you, going back to, your, so both your parents were from the, both of your parents were from the East End, yes, correct? Yes, both from Bow, yeah. Yeah. And did they, and both from Bow, so both born within the sound of Bow Bells, you probably thought I was going to ask you about that at some point, yeah. but yeah, <laughs> did they both identify then in, in terms of that, is that, did that give any sense of their identity in terms of coming from the area of London or, or was that not so important? Not so much really, I don't think. I think in fact they were both very determined to get out of the East End of London. Interesting. Um, because... And it took a long time because, I mean, my, that was in 1954. My, my mother actually had lost the first child. She, had a, oh. she was pregnant in 1948 and she lost the first child. Um, so if she was told in those days she would have to wait another five years to have mm. another child. Probably wasn't true, actually. But, no. I mean, in those days no. she was... So she waited until 1953 and then they had another child, which was me. Uh, right. And they almost immediately they decided they, that's what they wanted, wanted. They had to get out of the East End. I think it, it's hard to know exactly why, but I just think they found it a rather suffocating, depressing right. environment. To be honest, even even though, of course, I mean, they were both from quite big families. I, I should have mentioned that. I mean, my dad was one of ten children, 
My mum was one of five. So they were both from quite big families. Um, and they were the first really to move out of the East End. So they never really sort of, they never really identified themselves as East Enders. And you'd never have known they were from the East End of London in the same way as many others, many other members of my family, even ones who moved out further than they did into Essex and <laughs> Hampshire and goodness knows where. Um, no, so I don't think they did actually. No, they weren't, they didn't like, they didn't really like being East Enders, I don't think to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> okay. okay. Nothing against the East End of London. I mean, there are many fine people who live in the East End of London and still do, but uh, they just didn't want to be involved in that. Um, you know, hard yeah. to know why, really, but... Those their aspirations were different, maybe, but... Yeah. Uh, I think so, yes. I think there's an element of that. There's no doubt about it. Yeah, I mean, they... For instance, you know, they... Um, I mean, they were both very staunch conservative voters, um, okay. unlike the vast majority of people who lived in the East End of London then. Right. Um, they actually, one of the story I tell you is that they actually, I think in the 1951 election, they voted communist by mistake. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was because the communist candidate had a light blue poster. Um, okay. Because the, right. the Labour Party had taken the Labour Party had taken the red, so the Communist yeah. candidate had a light blue poster, and they mixed him up with a Conservative candidate. When they saw this light blue poster and the name, I think they thought he was the Conservative. So apparently, they, they then realised they voted Communist twice. Um, <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> it was a little yeah, or nothing. Really. Either, either yeah. Communist or Conservative. You know, nothing much in the middle. Um, <laughs> Yeah, the interesting mistake, and I'm yeah, I can't imagine what it must have been like when they realised. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it kind of been great. I mean, luckily it wasn't. It was luckily it wasn't a sort of marginal seat with a two-vote majority or something like that. No, okay, okay, yeah, and hopefully they didn't end up on some 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 secret watch list somewhere either. <laughs> well, you never know. No. Do you? That's true. That's true. <laughs> no, no, indeed. Um, anyway, funny, I'm not sure what I can sort of add to the family. I mean, I've, my brother, I have a brother, a brother who lives in Hackney now, Philip, who um, is a little bit younger than me. He's uh, two years younger than me, and um, okay. he's just had a knee replacement actually. Um, oh. So uh, he's just getting over that. But I think it would be a good. It's a very good thing in the long term for him. He's having good. real trouble, yeah, trouble with his knee. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah, absolutely. He's the one who was the former policeman. He was a he was in the ah. police for several years, and he... well, that's that's a nice segue actually in talking about you know occupations and so forth. Because already I, I figured you had quite divergent careers then, you and your brother. Yes, I suppose so. I mean, we're both kind of I suppose we're both in what you might call in general public service. Um, okay. okay. But um, it's true, and I, I like this idea of calling it an occupation. Because I think, in a way, occupation in my case is probably more appropriate than career, in the sense that you know I think I fell into a lot of these jobs <laughs> almost by accident, really, or just by just by luck. Um, you know, it's um, as you know. I mean, I worked most of my working life for the um, for the European Commission mm -hmm. uh, in Brussels, and I, I came to Brussels in 1979. When I was about 25, I was 25, and I worked there until I retired in 2014. So that was just over 35 years. That's um, um, 35 years of a lot of change as well. I mean, both at the Commission, but in terms of in Brussels, I mean, quite quite rapidly over the those decades, a considerable amount of of, of, of change. Very much, I think it's true. It's a very, um, I mean, certainly when, I, of course, as you can imagine, when I arrived, I mean, there were only nine EU members because um, Greece hadn't joined oh, yes. in that stage in 1979. And by the time I left, you know, we had 20, um, we actually had the, well, what was briefly the, um, the 20, I can't remember now whether it's 27 or 28. We've gone, 20, we've gone, back, to, we've gone yeah. back to 27 now with the UK leaving, of course, haven't we? No, we've got no, indeed, yeah, with a, with a with the uh, small uh, small uh, point of a, one one country dropping out, yeah. Yes, yes <laughs> but Croatia, Croatia just joined when I left, so we've gone to twenty eight. 
Okay. Um, but when you joined, you said there were nine. And actually, yeah. I suppose at that time in 79, were people still generally calling it the common market? Yes. Yes, that's right. Yes. I thought about that. Yeah. And, uh, it's, it's, I mean, we officially were called, um, we weren't called the European Commission officially. We were called the Commission of the European Communities. Okay. Um, and of course, gradually over time, the whole terminology changed. And now, of course, it's the European Commission and the, the European communities are now called the European Union. Yeah. But at least it was shorter. It's shorter to say, at least. <laughs> yes, that's right. Yes. And I think the, the difference, there was a big difference. I mean, certainly when I first joined, um, it was much more of a French speaking organization than it was when I left. There's no doubt about that. That. Right. that I hadn't really thought about and hadn't really realised as well. So, so it was much more dominant in terms of, well, just in terms of French language, but also, I suppose, from a much larger influence from France? Or I would say so, yes, because France, obviously, I mean, the UK had joined a few years before, in 1973. But, I mean, you got yeah. the impression the UK was kind of still feeling its feet a bit. You know, there, there was still a transition period in certain things. Um, and French, I mean, the French still thought, I think, that they had more influence than anybody else at the time. I think that's very clear. <laughs> and certainly the French language was, the French language was used um, predominantly in meetings and um, all sorts of get-togethers, which was difficult, I think, for a lot of people at the beginning. If you, I spoke a certain amount of French, but not very fluently. And it was mm -hmm. quite difficult to get used to it, I have to say, you know. Um, over the years, of course, things changed quite considerably. Um, I think you began to notice it, and ultimately, of course, you know, the press briefings, which were always done in French up till yeah. the beginning of the 2000s, finally switched over to being in a mixture of French and English. Um, that's and not that things like this. Yeah. No, things did change. It took a bit of time. I mean, and it's not saying it's a good or a bad thing. It's just, I think it was just the way the world was going, of course, you know. With, with yeah. Just, with the enlargement, with, particularly, I think, with the enlargement of 95, where you got Austria, Sweden, and Finland mm -hmm. joining, mm -hmm. um, which were all, I mean, at least in Sweden and Finland, were very much countries which used English as a, almost a, as a, well, as a second, but very, very fluent language in Austria. Yeah. Austrians tended to speak well, English as a second language. Quite common the case here in, in Belgium as well, isn't it, for people to speak English rather than Flemish or, or French or, or whatever. But but they used to say, um, you know, English was the language of commerce and French the language of diplomacy. I don't know if that had anything to do with it as well. but quite, quite Possibly. Uh, I think it was just also because, I mean, I think one will know this, that at the beginning of the Europe, I mean, obviously the perhaps German... Speak, you know, Germany didn't necessarily want to assert itself too much mm -hmm. in the beginning of the European Union for all sorts of you know, yes. historical reasons that one can understand. Um, so the French tended to take the lead, really, in terms of the use of the language. Um, and it was just also the fact that a lot of the Germans who worked at the European Union would speak a lot of languages. So many, when I first joined particularly, I mean, a lot of German almost all the German colleagues would speak French very fluently. And okay. over time, over time, many, most of them tended to prefer to speak English as a, as a second language. But um, it was certainly Did true you... that the French also, I mean, you, uh, with the French it's changed as well. I mean, the French colleagues speak much, much better English and foreign languages in general than they did when I joined. I think it's just a process of evolution, really. Hmm. Just people becoming more and more multilingual. But do you think now that UK has exited, Brexited, um, I mean, actually, officially, I suppose the only member state with, uh, with you know, English as its first language is is, is, is Republic of Ireland, uh, if I recall correctly. Yes, that's um, right. I mean, I think Malta and Cyprus still do have English as one of their two official yeah, languages. Do, do you think it will change going forward in the European Union, or do you think it's kind of set now and English is the, the it main It seems language? to me, from what I see, even if I'm not too close to it now, particularly with the pandemic and everything, but from what I see on all the coverage and people who you know speak tend to speak English um, yes. in public, you know, just to, to, the, to a wider public. 
Um, I mean, the, the current president, of course, she speaks um, French and English, and I mean, she's German, obviously, but she speaks French and English only equally well. Um, and uh, there's still a lot of, I mean, a lot of pressure, I suppose, on, on the French side to have somebody who speaks French as in these in these top jobs. But um, I'm not sure that Brexit will make such a big difference, really. I think it's more the, you know, it's become, particularly in a lot of areas like trade and competition and these kind of things, you know, you have, English tends to be the kind of lingua franca of, uh, of all mm -hmm. kind of, of all discussions and um, negotiations. But no, well, I mean, it's been, it was good. It was good fun. I mean, I, I enjoyed very much working at the commission. It was great. And I, I was very lucky to be able to, you know, do a reasonably interesting job. I was able to travel around quite a bit on some unfair trade. When I joined DG Trade, particularly in 1988, after that, okay. I, I was able to travel around the world on many sort of unfair trade investigations. And then I spent really latterly, I think after the year 2000, I spent a lot of time traveling to Geneva and you know, spent a lot of time in Geneva on, um, on various matters, you know, to do with the World Trade Organization. And, also Paris, Paris in the OECD as well. So um, I really, I've always, you know, I was always very grateful to the Commission. I think they gave me a very good uh, role in life, shall we say, in terms of work. And I learned a great, I learned a great deal. So, um, you know, I have no complaints there. And as you know, I've still been doing some sort of mm. voluntary consulting work for the Commission since I retired on a, just on, a, as I say, just on an ad hoc basis, really. And particularly this, this long-running dispute between Airbus and Boeing, which I've been involved in since it started <laughs> many, many long years time, ago. Yeah. Um, and which is probably, at least this phase of it, you know, has now been settled this year, this uh, bilateral agreement or understanding between the EU and the US. So mm -hmm. uh, this may, and I suspect this will probably be the last year I do this uh, kind of voluntary work anymore yeah. for the Commission. Okay. Okay. Yeah, but it's been it's been very good fun, I, and I, I must admit, you know, I was very very lucky. And uh, but as you say, once you've seen a lot of changes. I mean, there's no doubt about it. And um, I think obviously that when I think back on it, I suppose the biggest single change I was witness to was the was the enlargement of 2004 mm -hmm. with all the former, you know, with all the um, the East European countries, all the former Comic Con countries, you know, then joining the European Union. Um, and that was probably the biggest change, really, um, because that coincided with the day that smoking was banned in the European Commission and um, things like this. And I mean, it just it, it, it seemed to mark quite a watershed that you, you had a, uh, a different sort of organisation. I think a lot of people, particularly people who worked in the you know in the council in the member states, they said this as well that it became much more difficult to know everybody. Uh, who, worked, who came to committees and dealt with particular subjects, it became very hard to know everybody you know, because there were so many member states um, mm -hmm. that you, it was difficult to have sort of good contacts or relationships with everyone. You had to be a bit selective about the, the countries that you thought were the most important to, um, to keep up uh, contact with. It's, 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 that's very interesting because, I mean, there was definitely a, a significant change, as you say, in terms of the size of the European Union, but also the complexity. And, and also just how to manage all of that, because one, one of the things that's really difficult is, I mean, I often joke, probably inappropriately, that we don't live in the United States of Europe. You know, we, we live in a, a union of what now 27 member states, but they're incredibly different, aren't they? Remarkably yes. diverse and heterogeneous, and they're not very homogenous at all. Some would like that, I'm sure, because it would make life a lot easier overall. I mean, some things have helped, haven't they? You know, being able to travel, the Euro, all sorts of things have, have created a high degree of consistency across many of the member states yes. Yes. from a from a kind of citizen point of view. But actually, from an administrative and managerial point of view, I can imagine it was um, incredibly challenging and remains remarkably challenging to, the, to this day and going forward, I suspect. I think so, yes. I mean, I've always said, you know, when you, and this came across a bit of, when, at the time of the Brexit vote and the campaign. And I always said to people, you know, the European Union, is, it's an imperfect organisation. Yeah. Um, 
but it could be a lot worse. Yeah. Um, and it's made a huge amount of progress. Um, and by the way, every other organization is imperfect, you know, whatever it may be, whether it's the post office, FIFA, the Football Association, BBC. I mean, everything is imperfect. Everything, you know, everything, right, nothing, sure. works as, nothing works, <laughs> nothing works as, as well as it should do. Nothing works no. as well as it should do. But I mean, I, I always felt, I mean, one of the, the pleasures of working in the European Commission was that you could work with so many different nationalities and you would always have, you know, pretty much the same goals and the same objectives in what you were doing. And this notion, you know, that you leave your, your, you leave your sort of national hat at the door when you come into work, I think that does genuinely apply to most people. Um, Interesting. I certainly found it did. And I think that's one of the great, you know, that's one of the great achievements to sort of, well, you know, to weld, if you like, all these people from disparate backgrounds and member states and languages together to actually work effectively in one unit. Uh, that, that shouldn't really be underestimated. You know? And I, I think that's something which Europe, whatever one calls it, has done, has done pretty well. It's not going to be, as you said, there's no United States of Europe. I mean, maybe there will never be a United States of Europe. But um, I think, you know, a lot of work has been done, a huge amount of work has been done to make Europe work better so as a single market. And, uh, sort of yeah. thing, you know, and it shouldn't, I think that should be celebrated. Of course, unfortunately, it wasn't by a lot of people in the UK, but um, what can you do no. about that? <laughs> But, but that's, that, that, that point that, that point you were making, Steve, sorry, was, you know, about leaving your nationality at the door, but kind of identifying as European in, in this in so yes. many ways. Yeah, which, yes. which may be, you know, in some countries it's clear that there is, you know, people do identify as, as, their, as their kind of home country, but there is this kind of identity of being European. But mm. that, I think, that's very different back in the UK, I think, in terms of, there are some that clearly identify as, as being European, but there are many that, that don't, and that may always have been an issue, I suppose. I think that's right. I think it was because, as we, I mean, as we both know, and we've discussed before, you know, Euroscepticism yes. almost became an article of faith, even amongst politicians who were kind of nominally pro-European. Um, nobody could, um, you, know, you remember the famous thing with Gordon Brown signing the Lisbon Treaty, hiding behind a pot plant. You know, they, 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 I think for me that kind of summed up the whole the whole thing. I think he couldn't sign it on the day with everybody else, could he? So he went separately. And right. even when he signed it, he seemed, I mean, I don't think it was deliberate, but he seemed to be sort of hiding, half hiding behind a plant that somebody yeah. had put there, uh, just to sort of not to show his face while he was sort of shamefacedly signing this major international treaty. I think that's sort of summed up yeah. the UK, even people who would have said now, you know, I am yeah. extremely pro-European, it's so terrible we left the EU. Um, when you look back on the history of the things they've said over the years, yeah. you know, everything became a battle, you know, battle between oh, yeah. Britain and the EU. Um, I, don't, I don't think I don't, that was intentional, but I think it just was impossible to avoid politically with all the pressure from the press, you know, and the Murdoch papers and everything. It just became impossible to avoid taking that stance, I think, unfortunately. You have to be very brave not to do it. Yeah, oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I was wondering, actually, um, a couple of things come to mind. I mean, firstly, I can't remember if that pot plant actually got a gong in the New Year's Honours list that year for, for, for saving... <laughs> Gordon Brown in the embarrassment. Yeah, yeah, probably. Um, and the second thing was, I always... Preserving Kew Gardens. Yeah, probably. But, <laughs> but the other thing, I always thought of UK as, as like one of those friends you took to a party um, and they would often complain that, you know, I don't really know anyone here and uh, this is not my kind of scene. This is definitely not the kind of music I enjoy and Mm. Um, I don't like the food and so forth. I'll stay a little while. Let's see how it goes and so forth. But you know, I might I might leave early, and 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 mm. that's the impression I had of the UK in, in the European Union all those years. It was just you know, never quite secure, never quite totally comfortable. Asking for concessions and so forth, like turning music down, or could you order in some other food because I don't like this, <laughs> and all those kind of things. Um, and eventually, 
leaving early. So, <laughs> so maybe that's yeah, oversimplified. That's probably quite a good analogy, actually, and the way of putting it. I mean, it was a, I think it was one of those things where, and it's difficult to know really how it crept up on everybody because, you know, when you think back to the missus, when I first joined the EU, I mean, it was the time, just, just, just after I joined, it was a time when Mrs. Thatcher was banging the table and asking okay. for her money back, you know, in the, yeah. at the beginning of the 1980s. And at yeah. that stage, I mean, there seemed a very real possibility, you know, that there could be a big rift between the UK and the EU, Definitely. almost before the UK had really joined properly. And then, of course, you know, with the advent of the the single market, single European Act in 1986, and Mrs. Thatcher suddenly got very, very keen on the single market, and uh, everybody seemed to be very happy. And then suddenly, of course, there was this whole business about the euro, and then she ends up being forced out. And after that, it just seemed to dominate politics forever, didn't it? During the major government, uh, you had the, you know, the, I remember they were called the, what, I can't remember what they called them now, the, um, Bastards of these people weren't there? All the yeah, ones in the back bench, yeah, the back right. of the Sir Richard yeah. Body, and all these wonderful people yes. who were trying to sabotage the government. And I think even Blair, even the only time I thought possibly there would ever have been a chance of the UK becoming more integrated into the EU was when mm-hmm. Tony Blair first became Prime Minister okay. um, and seemed to be very pro European. There was maybe even a chance there that he could have actually use his influence to get Britain into the Euro. But I think clearly Gordon Brown was very opposed to all this. Didn't like totally. it at all. Um, yes. I mean, and that um, side of the Labour Party prevailed. And for, after that, you know, I don't think there was really any way back. No, uh, when you but look Tony, back on it now. Tony Blair didn't need a pot plant, but well, clearly. But, <laughs> but, but Gordon Brown definitely did, yeah. No, I, I think you're right. I think there was a big difference in opinion there. I think um, it's true, and I think well, and I think then it really got to the point where Cameron came along as this sort of, you know, you're, you're friendly, let, you know, you're a skeptic, but let's try and work with them, but let's try and get some concessions. And he made this rather bizarre decision to take the Conservative members of the European Parliament out of the um, out of the European People's Party and join this strange far right group. And I think after that, really, you just got a feeling it was just a matter of time um, that something would have to give. You'd have the referendum. And then it was just a question of which way it went. And there was a few percentage points each way. And uh, as we know, it went the wrong way. But I think when you look back at it, you can probably see the writing on the wall because the pressure was building all the time. And the, and the press, from the rights of the right wing press and all the anti-EU people running around. Um, very hard to... You know, again, it's sad to look back on it now, but you know, maybe there was a certain inevitability about the whole thing. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's interesting actually. I think that's 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 probably true actually. Uh, I mean, it was, as you say, only a, a matter of time. There was incredible unrest; it could, it would never go away, particularly with the Conservatives, kind of so yeah. central and dominant to, to their politics over the decades. Even though there are actually bigger problems to face and to address, yeah, and I mean, you know, I think it was again a lot of it was manufactured nonsense. Yes, let's be honest about that. And, um, and manufactured, lies and, yeah, lie and basic downright lies. I mean, as we as we all know now, without wanting to revisit the whole thing, I mean, no. uh, it was just a ludicrous uh, argument, but. As you said, there was something boiling deeper below, I think something boiling deeper below the surface, you know, which was always there. And, you know, it was, it just needed well, an opportunity to, to be given a chance, be given a voice. It was a very um, vexatious issue that politicians could obviously talk a lot of time about and feel they could do something about. Whereas they don't seem to be able to solve issues in healthcare and the climate uh, crime. I mean, you know, all the kind of standard stuff that would hope people would fix. Um, <laughs> arguably, you know, governments are, are, are consistently failing to, to address uh, considerably now. I think uh, in, not in just in, you know in, in many countries, but actually, you know, talking about Europe and you know, so the so the cows come home was something that you know was was something they felt they could um, they you know could spend a lot of time on. I think. Um, Particularly to, to the detriment of, of a really you know really key issues in people's lives, which yes, they don't. Yeah. 
for. So um, that's probably a very cynical view, but but um, but it has been very dominant over the over the no, years. I think you're, and, you're and, right. I mean, a, a sort of bashing foreigners is very easy as well, isn't it? Yeah. Because of course, they, I think the great the great achievement of the anti-EU lobby, which was to actually European Union as a foreign organisation. I remember Ian Duncan Smith talking about you know the, the Court of Justice as a foreign court, which is of course yeah. absurd because the UK is a member of the European Union. It's you know it's right. part of the European Union. Um, I always remember though. I mean, just just to close this thing. I mean, going back some years now, our um, John Redwood, I think he was. I remember seeing him on a television program when he was, he was a Conservative MP, and he was going around his constituency, and he was a, a program which was sort of following him around for a day, and mm. um, he said, "Let me tell you," he said, "the only thing that the, the main thing people are interested in this constituency is stopping Britain joining the euro." This was back you know, some years ago, <laughs> and. They went through the whole day, and nobody ever, and nobody mentioned the euro at all, no. and nobody was no. interested. They were talking about lots of other things, nothing to do with the euro. <laughs> and I mean, maybe these, but of course, what he was interested in was what he was interested in was Britain not joining the euro. I and mean, that was the thing. And as you say, he could he could chat away for ages about it. But anyway, there we are. That's where we are today. And Yes, we'll have to see. But the one one thing that's curious, of course, is is that Brexit has happened. The UK is no longer a member of the European Union, and it's still a dominant political issue. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. What's changed? I mean, yeah, it's incredible. Well, okay, maybe we'll we'll shift to other aspects of, of your life. And I suppose it's all part of the it's all part of the culture wars, isn't it? Really, as well. I think we yeah. began to, to recognise that as well. Now it's got some much wider ramifications about. What sort of society you really want to That's have in true. the future, and what subjects do you think are important? Uh, so, yeah. as I what I said, this farm its just something there was beginning to bubble up. And as you say, we probably just have to live with it. Um, there isn't much yeah. anyone can do now. No. <laughs> and of course, yeah. I should also have mentioned that I'm now um, uh, a Belgian citizen. Right. And Caroline, right. Caroline, of course, you know, my wife is also a Belgian citizen, so we're both. To some extent, I think we we have the luxury of thinking ourselves of, of ourselves as uh, EU citizens. Um, yeah, but that's dual citizenship, right? You have UK citizenship. We are dual citizens. Belgium. Yes, we still yeah. we still got the UK citizenship, yeah. and I've no I've no shame about being a UK citizen. I'm, I'm quite yeah. happy to be a UK citizen. I just uh, I think it was nice that we were able to have the Belgian citizenship right. as well, uh, because that makes us in a way still that makes us EU citizens as well as UK citizens. So in a sense, we have the best of both worlds, particularly for passports and things like this. You know. <laughs> so, so so now you're a uh, Belgian citizen, you know, retired uh, here in, 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 in Belgium. Um, what, so, so tell me what kind of, what do you like to do when you're obviously now not working as such, you've been doing voluntary work and so forth, but what's now kind of more, more taking an active role in your life post post working for the European Union and and you know over time what were your interests and recreational aspects or hobbies and so forth what kind of really interests you outside of the the politics and the trade aspects? Well, you know what's what's come something I've been doing a lot in the last few years and in fact some time before that is is writing. Um, so I write. I've written a novel and I've written short stories, but particularly I write a great deal of poetry as well. And I've had, uh, I've, I've self-published several books and I've been lucky enough to have a few poems published in magazines and newspapers and things like this. So that's something that really interests me. And did that grow say. particularly after you officially retired or is that something that's you've had through your life in terms of writing? And... It's something I've had for some years before I retired, yeah. So it okay. wasn't really retirement. I thought I've had more time to do it since I retired. Um, right. <laughs> but no, I, I mean, it's, it's something that's always been there, something that's always interested me. Um, okay. And, you know, it's just a, it's just luckily having had the time to, to do it and finish it and edit it and this kind of thing. So uh, I've been, that's something I really enjoy. Um, and um, what was the subject of the novel? The novel was um it was really a crime novel it was uh it was called the passage of truth which 
when I think about it, I don't think it was a terribly good title, but um, it was really about, uh, it, was a, it was a kind of a, a story about a murder and disappearance. And uh, it, uh, I enjoyed writing it. I don't, I'm not sure if it was very good, but I mean, I, I enjoyed writing it. And I mean, and a, and a few people who read it said they thought it was pretty good and you know, they seemed to enjoy it. So um, that was good. It was good. I enjoyed that. That was, that was, great, that was great fun. No, I enjoyed it too, definitely. Um, there's no doubt you, you're, you're talented, um, I, absolutely. Um, you know, some people are, are, are naturals, I suppose, when it comes to things like this, arts and so forth, and writing and so forth. And I think both from a literary novel point of view, but from your poetry point of view, I think you've created a bit of a following, I suspect. Well, it's very kind of you to say so. I mean, I, I, I enjoy, I mean, I, I actually am a, a member of a, of a, of a blog, um, poetry blog which is called write write out loud w-r-i-t-e write out loud um and that's interesting because there you can exchange poems and comments with lots of other people and lots of other poets um and that i also enjoy as well and that's uh, that's quite something that's quite fulfilling so um yes i mean that's been that's been a big part of my life um i mean carolyn and i also have this piece of land near floref uh, near namur uh, where we spend a certain amount of time as well, uh, which is a very nice place. And um, I mean, I probably should have mentioned a little bit more in the in the in the, in the family part, in the introduction, that we're living now in um, Lan, um, which is to the south of Brussels, quite close to Waterloo. Um, okay. I, I mean, we used to live much closer to where you were in Tebura, and, um, out to the east of Brussels. We moved a couple of years ago. Um, to the south of Brussels, which has been very, very nice. Uh, we we've enjoyed that. We have a we have a nice uh, a nice house here. Um, although strangely enough, I mean, it's been everything's been a bit overshadowed by the pandemic, of course, because <laughs> indeed we arrived in you know, the middle of 2019. And um, since then, I mean, since that first end of summer, it's been quite difficult to organise. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, of course. So you imagine. moved in so, not long after <laughs> the global pandemic. Hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, that's a good way to get used to your own house, I suppose, because you're not going very far from it um, yes. for at least a year or more, 18 months. But um, but yeah, I hadn't, I hadn't, that struck me, actually, that the proximity of when you're moving and then suddenly the pandemic. So, yeah, indeed. It could have been worse, of course, because, I mean, we had, we had I guess, what, Eight months here, and right. a Christmas. Um, I think, in fact, we 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 invited you and Nessie round in the January of 2020, if I remember rightly, didn't we? Um, yeah. And then, and of course, just after that, you know, the whole thing started up, didn't it? And so, yeah. But it's true, of course. I mean, it, it's been it's been more difficult. I mean, we we know we've met all the neighbours and we know them, but it's been more difficult to get too close to people because. It's been harder to have people around, you know. People don't want to necessarily, you know, meet up indoors and things like this. So um, and that has been a little bit limiting. But it's a, we're very happy here. It's a very nice house, and as I say, we're in a nice part of Brussels, which is it's hardly Brussels really. We're in the Wallon region now, you know, down in the down in the south. But we have this little piece of land at Floref, which is about 50 kilometers south of where we live um, in near to Namur, which is with the capital of the Wallon region. And we, we like that very much. We go there from time to time and uh, spend a few days there. And that's, that's a very nice sort of natural place to go. We did actually, although having said that, it was actually hit recently by, by the, uh, the floods that ah, we had here. Um, absolutely terrible. As, I think, as most people know, you know, there was tremendous, terrible damage. And of course, I mean, what what we suffered there is absolutely inconsequential compared to mm. what many people suffer. But we did. It does bring it home to you a bit when you see, you know, yes, this, all this mud that was just um, swept along by the side of this little stream that leads into our piece of land. And um, I mean, things like you know, there was a bridge, a wooden bridge, which was shifted about. Four or five yards along, just by the force of the water, obviously, and by and this kind of thing. And a tree was a tree was knocked down. 
just by really by the force of the floods and the water coming down. So you can see, I mean, it, it, you, you see a little bit, because we were lucky here where we live, we didn't really have too many problems. Right. Um, places nearby did, but we are, we are quite high up here. So the water just sort of going yeah. past us, luckily. But, uh, you know, just certainly down at Floref, we certainly saw uh, a lot of, uh, you know, serious damage. And you can understand how powerful the, um, Absolutely. the water is and the floods are. It's, it's quite extraordinary. I think, um, sadly, a lot of people will be wanting to live higher up over time because yes. this is um, this, this is kind of we're, we're stuck with this now, I and mean, we're only going to see more of this. I mean, it's good, you know, we're we're dealing with flooding in like Belgium and Germany and Austria and so forth. So, I mean, you know, so severe. I mean, beyond even generational experience. I mean, really considerable disaster. And then, mm. meanwhile, towards the Mediterranean, you've got. You know, Athens encroached by wildfires and huge rise in temperatures. And yes, it's yes. Uh, it's a very destabilized time, isn't it? It does seem to be, doesn't it? I mean, certainly there's a great deal of, and it's you, know, you talk about the particular. We were talking at the beginning about the particular issue that I I might be yes. interested in, and I suppose ultimately, you know, I think I got sidetracked for several years by Brexit and uh, all these <laughs> kinds of things. But I mean, I think ultimately the issue that's still interests me the most is, is the one of climate change and the all the yeah. you know the what one what the world has to do to try yeah. and avoid you know the the you know this catastrophic warming of the planet or heating of the planet which I think is probably the most yeah. appropriate way to put it. The problem is of course in these situations you don't I always think to myself you don't really know the answer. I mean I yeah. I read as much as much as I can about it and, and some of the scientific reports yeah. and Things, but you know, there is this. I mean, I, I was thinking the other day, I mean, we bought an electric car last year, okay, which of course it makes you feel quite good because you've got an electric car and you think, Well, I'm not using petrol, and okay, I'm you know, I'm using electricity, but that's not using that's not creating as much CO2 overall as petrol. But you still wonder whether this is really the right way to go, you know, whether mm, private transport like this is necessarily the future that mankind needs, you know, just replacing a petrol car with an electric car. It's uh, interesting. Is that really going to cut it, you know? I think, I, don't, I mean, I have a very <laughs> profound and uh, maybe not politically correct view that I think that the kind of changes we need to make for for climate, for, you know, to, to, to impact on the climate sufficiently, and, and you know, irrespective of the fact that we will see, we've seen, we are seeing damage. It's not a, it's a great quote I can't recall who uh, who's attributed to, but they were saying it's no longer about models but about observing. But uh, mm. and it's just sadly, it's, it's, it's kind of true. But I think, mm. I think personally, I think um, the kind of changes we need to make are irreconcilable with how our societies run these days. I, I think people don't understand that. I mean, look at the pandemic. They say it's reduced emissions by what seven percent or something. You know, in terms of you know reduction in flights and yes. car you know, all those kind of things. Um, and you know, that's a minuscule amount still in comparison to the kind of change we need to see. Um, and um, if we to make even more of a profound change than 7%, that ultimately means we need to stop doing a lot of things we're doing, not replacing them, as you say, you know, I will not have a diesel or petrol car, I'll have an electric car, but actually just stopping doing a lot of the things that we do now, doing them so radically different, um, because it's going to take so long to to recover the the climate, if at all. So it's it, it's a really challenging. It is the most significant challenge of our era of of our race, actually, our species. I think it is, and I think it's as you say. When you look at it from some points of view, it, it gets rather depressing because you think, well, what can you really do now? Things have gone so far. Um, there's already there's always so much warming built in into the climate and in the way of life that we have. And yes. I mean, we see this now, you know, everybody's suddenly desperate to go on, on holidays and uh, yeah. fly all over the place and, you know, do everything. And, and the point you make about the pandemic, I think is very good. The fact that something that was such a, you know, such a life-changing experience for many people, you know, with lockdowns and, you know, society having to shut down in many yeah. respects. And it still only resulted in a very small reduction in emissions, really. Um, Indeed. You, the idea of having to reduce emissions 
by a huge amount, which is which is going to be necessary. Let's face it; no one knows that. Um, True. And and not and, and being able to sort of continue, people being able to continue to lead the lives which they expect. And it is all this question, I think, of expectations, isn't it? You know? Yes. And there'll always be, and the problem, of course, is as we know, there'll always be politicians around who are going to try and jump on this and say these people are just killjoys. They're trying to stop you enjoying your life. You know, <laughs> vote for me, and I'll build. I'll I'll bring back all the coal and uh, everything like this. Yes. You know, more more fracking yeah. and anything you like. And that's yeah. going to be very very persuasive for a lot of people, isn't it? Because people think. Yeah, and it is persuasive. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. It is persuasive, and I think. Where we are challenged, to your point, is, um, you know, we can't live in a world of almost 8 billion libertarians. It's <laughs> <laughs> not feasible. No, I think that's right. I think, I mean, I suppose, you know, you can go into this in more detail. I mean, I yeah. suppose this, the rise of China has changed so many things as well in such a short time. That's not to say that China is to blame or anything like this. I mean, that's not, that's not no. the issue. But I mean, it clearly has shifted the equation a lot in mm -hmm. terms of, being able to reduce something where, you know, in the case of China, where a continuing increase in emissions is just built in to the system yeah. now for many, many years, whatever they do. Um, and I mean, it, it's the same. But I think, you know, so I'm, I'm, I don't want to single out China because every every country is is essentially the same on this. That we yeah. we people expect to have a certain kind of life. That everyone expects to have a car. You can drive. You can drive unlimited mileage in, and um, go on any number of holidays per year you want to, uh, provided you can afford it, of course. Indeed. And, um, you know, his mates can sort of zoom off into space for $450,000 a go or something like this. So, yeah. in a sense, I mean, we are creating this world where there's this sort of endless level of expectation about being able to do yeah. more and more things. But as you say, if you go on like that, you know, there's going to come a time, and I think you're right. I mean, people have said this recently that you know that it's not really theoretical anymore. It's not climate change. It's not something that's going to happen in the future. It's happening no, now, yeah. and it's manifesting. It's manifesting itself now, and, yeah. and a lot of the, the, the tipping point, whatever the tipping point is, um, yeah. it seems to me that part, you know, the tipping point is already being reached. Yeah. <clears throat> so are we? You know, and of course, and then you can sound, you can just make yourself extremely depressed and jump off a cliff or something because <laughs> there's nothing anybody can do about it. But yeah. I guess we just still got to believe there is. You know, I think we've still got to believe that people will be able to change and still be, will be able to limit emissions well, and do, do things. Something that's globally an existential threat. There has to, will have to come a time. I mean, I think this is again what we were saying earlier about focusing on manufactured issues like Brexit and so forth, at least in the UK, but in fact, multiple countries, you know, politicians are not well best placed. You know, that's not their motivations and drivers, as, as you said, you know, if it's gaining votes and staying in power because they're pressing for jobs, coal and oil and gas and so forth, and and uh, and just consumption uh, yeah. In, in, yeah. and so forth, um, that's completely irreconcilable with actually doing doing what we need to do. So this this is a this is this is a fundamental challenge to, to nearly every aspect of what we do in our in our society. And I'm I'm conscious that we're coming to a close of of, of our time about an hour. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And we don't want to negative a, a, a no, point. Right. That, and also, so I don't want to blame. I don't, I don't blame most politicians because I think. People are just trapped in this, um, yeah. Yeah. Like this vicious circle of having to promise, having to promise more and more to people in order to, yeah. to get elected. So it does. Sure. It will take somebody or something, you know, very very special to sort of shape the world and wake people up and um, visionary or uh, yeah, yeah, and also to make make it clear to people that there's got to be a little bit. Less inequality as well. I should say that because obviously that's also one of the problems. It's seen as it's sort of seen as a climate change. I think it's still seen as a kind of a bit of a luxury item for wealthy countries and wealthy people, isn't it? You know, do things to help the climate. I mean, it's like me right. buying an electric car. I mean, a lot of people can't afford electric cars. No. So, anyway, I don't want to, as you say. I don't want to end on a on a completely no, pessimistic, no. pessimistic no. note. But I think you know it's just just the way things are, isn't it? 
There is, there is. But what would what would your dream be to end on? I suppose going forward in in, in the future, what's you know what's your vision, as it as it were, of how things could change or or how we can improve things? What would you like to see? Well, I mean, it's it's strange actually when you mention this dream because I, I tend to kind of associate dreams with fear a lot of the time. <laughs> You often tend to have dreams where you're sort of trapped on a very high building on a small platform or something like this. Um, you know, I, I think probably it is this, I suppose my dream would be that people, and it sounds a bit pious, but probably it is that, you know, countries and people would learn to work to, work together a bit more and understand to tackle all these changes uh, that are going to be necessary. Right. in the world i mean it, it sounds a big it sounds a big uh, optimistic thing but i think it's the only thing that yeah. you can you can hope for that there's going to have to be more international cooperation and between people who actually understand the issues and but somehow that, manage to bring people and somehow manage to bring populations with them which is yeah no that's created your your life i suppose isn't it i mean you know much of your career in terms of working at the european commission and, and so forth and working within the context of the European Union you know your, your life has been about you know, collaboration hasn't it and working between many different peoples with different agendas and so forth different countries and so on but actually mm. bringing people together to 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 actually do do positive things which I suppose is, is very much inherent in your vision of the world I suppose yes I could I I suppose one could say that I mean I think it's been a very um I mean, it's certainly been an interesting experience in that point of view, and it has enabled me, I think, to understand how people can work together from different backgrounds and nationalities. Right. <clears throat> but also, I think, at times, to appreciate how difficult it is, you know, yeah. uh, how difficult it is to sometimes to get, pe to get people of different nationalities to agree to things. <laughs> it, it does require a lot of work, you know, but it, it can be done. So, I um, think... That's a fantastic point to end on, actually, Steve, if I may, um, that, it, that people can work together. It can be difficult. It does need work, but, but ultimately it can be done. I think that's a, a very fitting way to, to end our conversation on a high note. Well, thank you very much, Nigel. And uh, Thank you. I'd like to say thank, thank you. you from both myself and, and Caroline as well, who uh, is always there and uh, is always, you know, you know, making my life, giving my life some meaning as well. So. Um, I, I want to dedicate you know, part of this to her, certainly. That's a lovely thing to do. Thank you very much for sharing your life with us in this time and for dedicating it to, to Carolyn. And, um, and yeah, I really, really have appreciated you, uh, you opening up during, uh, during the podcast and, uh, being, you, and being open to doing so. So thank you thank very you. much. Very interesting conversation. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot. Okay. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Cheers. Bye.